Governments have been doing this for history. I mean, back in the Roman times, they, they took gold coins and, you know, clipped some of the gold out of them and made them lighter. Uh, that was the way of debasing the currency. You know, you have uh, this coin that's worth a dollar that's an ounce of gold, uh, and then they clip a little bit out of it. And now it's less than an ounce of gold, but it's still a dollar. So you're basically devaluing your, your currency. Well, when you do this, it allows the government to, uh, to borrow more. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and I have on the show a good friend of the program, Mike Meharry. Um, Mike, he serves as the National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center. He's also the Managing Editor for the uh, Shift uh, Gold website, and he's the author um, of four books and several ebooks. one of which we're going to talk about today. Um, and, and welcome to the show, Mike. I, I appreciate you taking time to, to be on with us today. It's always a pleasure, man. I appreciate you having me. I'm excited to talk to you about, uh, about stuff and things. Yeah, stuff and things. Um, first thing I want to mention is, is I'm just so impressed with the Tenth Amendment Center. Um, in my mind, they are the, 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 the best on-the-ground group um, for the liberty movement. And, and they're doing so much good work. They, they had an incredible... Um, win in in Missouri, um, as far as the Second Amendment is concerned. You, you want to talk about that for just a second? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, and I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I you know hate to toot my own horn, but I I do think we uh, I think we do extremely effective work, uh, especially in terms of you know practical activism. Um, we, we, we do a lot of education, but our focus, especially, uh, during the state legislative sessions is really to use state and local power to, uh, undermine and thwart unconstitutional federal actions. And virtually everything the federal government does is unconstitutional at this point. Uh, so there's plenty of targets. And, um, you mentioned in particular, uh, a, a pretty exciting win. It's actually was eight years in the making, uh, in Missouri, they finally passed what is known as the Second Amendment Preservation Act. And in a nutshell, this uh, piece of legislation, which is now law, prohibits the state of Missouri from cooperating with a pretty wide gamut of past, present, and future federal gun control. Um, it, you know, it's not going to block the federal government from enforcing it. It's not going to arrest ATF agents or anything like that. But what it does is it withdraws state and local support. So if uh, Joe Biden or whoever happens to be president in the future wants to enforce some type of draconian gun control, uh, he's not going to get the participation of state police and local officers in the state of Missouri. And this is significant because virtually everything the federal government does, it requires assistance from state and local uh, officials and agencies and, and resources. And there's this beautiful little thing that's carved into the American judicial system, which is known as the anti-commandeering doctrine. And since the uh, 1840s, the Supreme Court has held that the federal government cannot force a state or a local government to implement a federal program or enforce a federal law. It can't require states to use their own personnel and resources uh, to do federal actions. And so that gives a great deal of power to state and local governments. I think and that's something that people don't realize. I think people, you know, when they think about the, the uh, federal government, they think that 
like the federal government is just like overseeing father over the states and the states kind of have to do whatever they say. And that, I mean, this, that, that, that just turns it on its head uh, yeah, as absolutely. far as what the relationship should be. And what's sad is that, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is what's really flipped things on its head. The United States, as it was founded, uh, it was not one nation as so many people seem to think, you know, because we're, we're, uh, indoctrinated by the Pledge of Allegiance every day when we're little kids in school. Uh, the United States is not a nation in the strict definition of the word. Uh, and, and the difference is important. The nation is a singular entity. France is a nation. And in a nation, all of the power is at the central authority. So, you know, the government in Paris, France has absolute control over everything that happens in France and every division, you know, cities, counties, whatever they have in France, they are all subject to the feder- uh, to the to the national government. The United States is actually a federated republic. And in that case, you have uh, sovereign states that have delegated certain powers to the federal government. So the federal government is only supreme within those areas that have been delegated to the federal government, which are really quite narrow in scope. As James Madison put it in Federalist 45, when they were debating the Constitution, he said the uh, powers delegated to the federal government by the proposed Constitution are few and defined. And that's what we flipped on our head. We've gone to the point now where the powers of the federal government have become numerous and indefinite, uh, whereas the states are supposed to function as little subsidiaries. And uh, Bills like this that were passed in Missouri are small steps forward of actually restoring the constitutional structure as it was meant to be. And it's a decentralizing thing, and I think that's extremely important because I think anybody who cares about liberty, the greatest threat to that is overreaching centralized power. So that's really what we're trying to do at the Tenth Amendment Center is to devolve that power back to the state and local governments. In this case, it's gun control, but uh, you can apply this same uh, strategy to all kinds of different issues, uh, everything from sound money to, uh, you know, immigration sanctuary cities, if you're on the left, um, marijuana legalization, and it allows local jurisdictions to better reflect their own populations and their own uh, their own wills. And of course, it's not perfect. State and local governments are awful as well. But I'd rather have a decentralized system where uh, there can be some escape valve uh, you know, if you live in a place where you want strict gun control, well, then move to California. Uh, right. You don't want to be in Missouri, but at least you have that option. And, um, you know, I think this is a, it was a huge victory for the right to keep and bear arms. And uh, Arizona actually passed a similar bill as well. So it wasn't uh, just Missouri. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we're really excited about it. And, and hopefully we can build that on that in the uh, coming years. That's wonderful, and 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 the other thing I appreciate about the Tenth Amendment Center is it, it is truly nonpartisan. You know, it, it it is equally against tyranny in any in any political party or form. Um, yeah, we make we make everybody mad. That's right. <laughs> that's right. We even Except make for, we even make libertarians mad sometimes because <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah, because you know it's I, we we don't want to use the federal government as some kind of liberty enforcement squad right. where you're trying to impose liberty from the centralized power. Federal government isn't empowered to do that either. You know, that's not among the delegated powers. Uh, so we sometimes uh, step on some libertarian toes when we say, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea for the Supreme Court to be making broad sweeping dictates that uh, apply to 350 million people. Yeah. And that, and, and again, again, the, the, I think that the very practical and, um, uh, substantive a- approach that, that you guys take is, 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 
making making some of the biggest differences and and I'm excited to see where what's going to happen next and and I know that lots of groundwork has to be laid in order for something to happen like what happened in Missouri but but you know it it's those little steps that, that make the difference. So, so yeah, it's it's thank interesting. You. In in a there's there's a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to uh, a friend of his who was a reverend. I can't think of his first name. I off the top of my head, the last name was Clay. But there's a line that really sticks out in that letter to me. Uh, Jefferson said, "The ground of liberty is to be gained by inches," and he was really making a strategic point that. You know, you're not going to get when when you have tyranny that has become as overreaching as it has in modern day America and, of course, all over the world. Uh, you're not going to gain that back in one fell swoop. You have to take that ground back by inches. And that means small steps forward, small victories forward. So, uh, you know, each of these legislative victories are important, but we also have to remember that we're not done. Uh, we can't just rest and say, okay, we're done. You know, we, we had this victory. It's, it's a constant battle. It's a constant progression, as Jefferson put it, by inches. And that's really uh, the kind of underlying philosophy of what we're doing at the TAC. And that frustrates people sometimes too, because we'll often, uh, you know, support incremental small steps forward, even though they may not be the whole kit and caboodle. And people say, well, you're, you're, you're not really for liberty here, but, but you have to be willing to, to work strategically and, and gain that ground by inches. And uh, sometimes yeah. that's a hard line to walk. You have to know, uh, you know, when, when to give and, and when to stand firm. And that's, uh, that's part of the, the work that we do every day over at the TAC. Well, I, I re- um, highly encourage any of my listeners who are interested in, in liberty and and if you want to see practical um, uh, practical policies and things to put in place that can that can over the long term increase the liberty in the, in our United States, um, I support the Tenth Amendment Center. Go check it out. Read the documents. Read what they've got out there, and and if possible, you know. Uh, throw them a shekel or two because because that that money is well worth um, it's it's well worth it, it it's I, I I can't tell you how much um, I appreciate and, and support the Tenth Amendment Center um, I wanted that kind of leads us into um, your new ebook and and you know it's interesting we talk about you know centralized power and and your your book is is entitled the national bank versus the constitution and i'm curious uh, what inspired you to write this and and what it, what are we talking about when we talk about the national bank yeah it's a great question so a couple of years ago i was doing some research on uh, various clauses in the Constitution, general welfare clause, uh, the commerce clause, uh, necessary and proper. These clauses in, in the Constitution that are often used to justify uh, various overreaching federal programs. And so, you know, you can go back to the ratifying debates and, and you can find that these clauses are actually rather limited in scope. And as I was researching, I kept running across uh, quotes uh, that were coming from a document that Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, when there was the first big constitutional debate over whether or not the United States could charter a national bank. And uh, so as I was looking into this, I actually ended up writing an article just focusing on Jefferson's arguments against the national bank. And then Michael Bolton was like, you know, we could actually 
create this or turn this into an ebook. Uh, look at some of the other arguments that were out there. Some of the other folks, uh, particularly James Madison. Um, and, and others who were opposed to the bank and, and kind of contrast that to uh, Hamilton's arguments. This national bank was the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton. And, uh, and so it really it turned into a really neat project, and, and it kind of does several things. The first uh, part of the book actually explains uh, you know, why governments love central banking. And, you know, in a nutshell, it gives them control over the currency. And by having control over the currency, it allows them to borrow and spend far beyond what they would be able to do if they were restrained by, you know, actual taxation. And so every big government person loves a central bank because it, it facilitates this spending. And so I talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve and note that its roots go all the way back to Hamilton's National Bank, uh, which was really, it was just two years after the Constitution was ratified that this debate was happening. But I think even you know more significant than that, this was really the first constitutional debate. And I would argue, and I do argue in the book, that the fact that Hamilton ended up winning this argument uh, really put in place the mechanism that led to so much of the federal overreach that we see today because people bought into these arguments that really expanded uh, federal power. And um, had Jefferson and Madison prevailed, and they should have if we were going by what was promised during the ratification debates, we would have a much less... uh, expansive government today than we actually do, not only because we wouldn't have this central bank uh, that's facilitating you know, trillion-dollar deficits, but also because uh, we would still be holding to the promise of, uh, you know, as Madison again put it, a federal government with powers few and defined. Hamilton's arguments literally turned the Constitution on its head. Um, and, and one of the most significant things that he does that we really dig into in this book is, uh, you know, when the Constitution was being debated, Hamilton said the federal government would have only the explicit powers that were delegated to it. He used that word, explicit powers, in, in the Federalist Papers. And then all of a sudden, magically, after the ratification, he discovered implied powers, you know, these, these mystical implied things that weren't really there, but they're there. And, and, you know, if he had talked about implied powers during the ratification debates, we wouldn't have a constitution today. The people of the states would not have ratified had they thought that it was going to lead to this, you know, the this ultimate idea bait that, and switch, huh? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, and I, I argue uh, and, and, you know, some, uh, this is debatable, I'm sure, but I say that Hamilton gave us one of the greatest political flip-flops in the history of the United States. Uh, when you look at his arguments for the Constitution during ratification and then all of the things he said during this bank debate, it's literally 180 degrees different. You know, he, he, he says things that are completely contradictory within a two-year period. And, I mean, politicians do this all the time, so it shouldn't shock us, I don't guess, but... Uh, given the ramifications, it's pretty sad. And you know, Hamilton is is still revered in many circles as a as a as a great American politician. And and uh, why you know. why um, the the I mean, it's well. Let's back up. I want to back up and, and kind of go basic here because when most people think about the bank, they're thinking about 
um, you know, the bank on the corner where they, where people, you know, keep their money, you know, or maybe if they're, uh, if they have a little bit of education and, and understand the fed, they might understand the fed to a little certain degree. Um, but, but a national bank, how is that different from the local bank down the street? And, and why does that give the central government so much power? Yeah. A national bank has monopoly control over the currency and, as a result, it can expand uh, the the currency at will. And governments have been doing this for history. I mean, back in the Roman times, they they took gold coins and you know clipped some of the gold out of them, and made them lighter. Uh, that was the way of debasing the currency. You know, you have this coin that's worth a dollar. Well, it wasn't a dollar then, but we'll say a dollar just for, right. for sake of argument. Uh, this coin that's worth a dollar that's an ounce of gold, uh, and then they clip a little bit out of it, and now it's less than an ounce of gold, but it's still a dollar. So you're basically devaluing your, your currency. Well, when you do this, it allows the government to uh, to borrow more. And that's really the the whole impetus behind it. When you have a central bank that the government can quote unquote borrow money for, it really creates an unlimited well of um, of money that the government can tap into. Much more so today than even back in Hamilton's time. There was still uh, a good bit of constraint on monetary policy, although the the, the national bank did have some ability to expand it th- uh, through credit. But um, the today's Fed can literally uh, create money out of thin air. We call it printing money. They're not really, you know, running dollar bills off in the basement of the Eccles Building, but uh, <laughs> they can literally few keystrokes, and they're creating money. And um, it, it's extremely important to uh, to really grasp this, and it's hard to grasp, and that's why I think that most people don't. So I'm I'm going to try to give the uh, the layman's version of how the federal uh, how the Federal Reserve allows the government to borrow money. Okay. Yeah. The so obviously, if if there there are two ways that you can fund uh, government spending, you can tax it. You know, so you, I can come to you, Mike, and I can, you know, take a buck from you and and give it to the Treasury, and then they can go spend that buck on a gun. Um, the other way that they can do this is borrow money. So in order to do that, they have to issue a bond. We call them treasury bonds. Uh, and so they literally go out and, and they sell you, Mike, a treasury bond. Uh, you give them a buck. And uh, in 10 years, they'll give you your buck back plus interest. So, you know, not a bad deal for, for either party, I don't guess. You know, I mean, it's basically the same way that, that we borrow on a credit card. Uh, you know, we take the money now and we have to pay it back later with interest. Right. Well, Okay, that's that's all fine and good for now. But the Federal Reserve actually has the power to buy treasuries. So in essence, it is creating artificial demand for US Treasury bonds. So if you go out on the open market, there is a certain, you know, there's certain people who want to buy bonds for investment slash savings pur- purposes. We've got uh, government institutions uh, in the United States that will buy them, states, corporations, individual investors. Uh, we have foreign investors, you know, the Chinese, foreign central banks. So people will buy these as investment products. They're considered very safe. You're going to get your money back. You're going to get your interest. Uh, everything is hunky-dory. But the problem is, as with anything, I mean, there's only so much that you can borrow, right? There's only so many bonds that you can sell out there in the open market before people are like, ah, 
you know, I, I don't want any more of these. Right. And so when that happens, um, you know, as with all things supply and demand, then the price of the bonds have to go up or have to go down to entice people to buy them. And the interest rate that you're paying on them has to go up uh, in order for people to want to invest in more of these bonds. Well, that becomes problematic, obviously, because you have to sell more bonds and you have to pay more interest, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that increases the borrowing cost for the government. That's where the Federal Reserve enters in. They can go in the open market. They can buy up a bunch of these bonds. They create artificial demand so that kind of pushes the price up a little bit. It pushes those interest rates down and it allows the U.S. government to sell far more bonds than it otherwise would be. So basically it has its thumb in the bond market. Wow. So it, it, it's a, it, is that what they call quantitative easing? That is exactly term? what, what that is exactly what is called quantitative easing. Easing the, the price of the bonds. That's, that's interesting. Ex that's exactly what they're doing. And, and it's, you know, basically it's, it's, market manipulation if you really get down for to sure. it they're manipulating the market so that it's easier for the government to borrow money and if you did not have the other of course the other side of this equation is the federal reserve doesn't have to have money in its checking account in order right. to buy these bonds it pushes a button it creates the money so brand new money goes to the bank the bonds go to the federal reserve the bank sends that money out into the economy and you end up with more dollars. That's what we call inflation. Uh, and, and eventually, your, you know, the, the buying power of your money decreases as the Federal Reserve um, puts more and more currency into circulation. Uh, you know, you think about it this way. If you have a, uh, an economy that just had a donut and a dollar and then all of a sudden, you know, that dollar, that donut's worth a dollar and then all of a sudden you create another dollar. Well, then all of a sudden it costs $2 to buy that same donut because right. that's the dollars. That's exactly what the economy does on a larger scale. So when you look at like what the Federal Reserve has done just over the last year, the Federal Reserve has created all, over $4 trillion in new money that's been injected into the economy. Uh, you know, so people wonder why prices are rising and, and whatnot. Well, that's part of your answer right there. So, right. So this is a very nefarious thing. It, 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 I say that the Federal Reserve is the engine that powers the most powerful government in the history of the world. If the federal government didn't exist, there's no way it could finance all of this spending, all of the welfare state, all of the warfare state, all of the uh, corporate welfare. All of these programs would be impossible because they would actually have to raise the money through – uh, you know, uh, legitimate means of taxation or actual borrowing. And the cost would be too great. People would throw a fit and they wouldn't put up with it. But because it can be hidden by the central bank, uh, then it allows the federal government to do so much more than it otherwise would. Now, the problem with this is ultimately even uh, even being the reserve currency of the world, even with the power economically that the United States has, there is a limit to how much the federal government right. can do. And, um, you know, I don't know what that limit is. I would have thought we would pass that a long well, time ago. But let's, let me ask you this then, because it, let's assume for a second, I know this is not true, but let's assume a for a second there wasn't a limit. What would the problems of an unlimited checkbook for the uh, for a central government be? Like, what what would we see? And, and I know obviously the, the obvious problem is, is inflation. I mean, and we are seeing that. But I'm I'm also thinking. You mentioned like the war state, the welfare. I mean, what are things that that maybe people on a practical basis that money has to go somewhere. And so, what what are the types of things that that government spends on, and, and what are the consequences of having an unlimited checkbook uh, for the government? 
Well, I think to me, the biggest problem is is the warfare state that's allowed. I don't think we would have uh, U.S. empire building and uh, the wars across the world that we have today if it wasn't for the central bank. Um, and of course, you know that's going to rankle the feathers of a lot of conservatives because they like their wars. But they don't like their welfare programs, and, and on the flip side of that, you wouldn't have a you know billion dollar welfare programs either. And by um, the way, that also that also leads that warfare state leads, in my opinion, directly to the surveillance state, which exactly. is directly towards us that that nobody should like, and it leads to a a a, um, a, a, a draconious IRS that is going to do mm-hmm. everything it can to. to to pull every dollar out of our pockets. Yep, absolutely. So, and, and let's look at it, you know, just step back from a more macroeconomic standpoint. I think people get confused because they confuse money with stuff. Money is not stuff. There's only so much stuff in the world, right? So you can't just print money and create more stuff. That's why you have inflation. That's the whole limiting factor is that the government can print all the money in the world, but there's no way that it can print all of the stuff, all of the resources, all of the things that uh, that you can buy with money. So therefore, as you print more money, the prices relatively go up and up and up. Uh, but people are, are fooled into thinking that the government is actually creating something. It's not. It's merely using its power to print money, to pull more resources out of the private sector and use them for government purposes. So every dollar that pulls a resource out of the economy, that's a resource that can't be used to create a good service for us. Um, So basically, if you think that Joe Biden and Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi are the best people to determine what it is and isn't that we do and don't need, then I guess this is a cool system. (laughs) But if you're skeptical of Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and all of these clowns in Washington, D.C., maybe it's not such a good idea that they are using the printing press to control all of the world's resources. That's really the problem. It's pulling resources out of productive means and putting it into government means. And I would argue that almost always, even if the government's trying to do something good, it can't even do that right, you know? Yeah. But, but Mike, here, I mean, I think this is the rub that, that, uh, that I hear and, and I, I get like, like what's the alternative? I mean, okay. Yeah. The, the a national bank is bad. Boo hoo hoo. Like what, like what can you do about it? In other words, has there ever been a time without a national bank? Is there, is there, do we have anything to go by? I mean, who's going to control the money other than the government? Like, is there another alternative? Yeah, absolutely. Um, currency competition, just like anything else. Currency didn't come into existence because some government somewhere said, okay, gold is going to be money. Uh, gold actually evolved into money. Silver evolved into money over time simply uh, by by market use. It was the best thing that they could come up with as a means of exchange, which is all money really is. It's a way of, of exchanging goods without having to actually have the goods in your hands. Um, so money came into existence without government, so it seems uh, unlikely that you have to have government to keep it in existence. Really, all the government is doing is it's creating a monopoly so that it controls the currency. 
Um, and even in the United States, we did have a period of time between the second uh, Bank of the United States, which uh, came into being um, under James Madison, ironically, uh, not terribly long after the first national bank charter expired. But then 20 years later, Jackson refused to uh, renew it. And so we had about... Uh, I can't remember, 30 or 40 years where there was no central bank um, before the Federal Reserve actually came into existence. So you can have banking without – now, people will say, oh, well, if you do that, you're going to have all kinds of chaos in the economy. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know what you call what we've got going <laughs> on out there now, but um, you know, I, I'm not sure that the central bank has made things well, all that much and better. That, but- that, that really just – I think people are not stupid. And, and this is this is the thing that, that I – I come back to is that people have figured this out for, for years that like we know uh, over time, as we, as we communicate with our neighbors, we know what a, a gallon of milk is going to cost or what it's worth, whether we call that in dollars or whether we call that in, in francs or whether we call that in gold or Bitcoin, we know what that that's worth. And, and over time, if we allow ourselves to communicate with one another and, and not have a, have this, you know, um, imperial, imperial um, <laughs> a, a, a dollar put upon us that says this is the only currency that you can use. Like we can figure this stuff out, right? Absolutely. You know, and and uh, the problem is, is when you involve the government, it actually destroys that communication. It destroys those signals, and that was really uh, uh, Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, who was a, a economist back in the uh, early 1900s? Uh, he really understood the importance of these price signals, and he argued vigorously against socialism on that basis. Because when you start destroying and distorting price signals, then you it 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 distorts those uh, signals that we have and we st- we can't figure out the relative value of different things and that's why socialism will ultimately always fail because there is no way that you can allocate resources properly without these price signals uh, there's a really good analogy that I actually came up with uh, during the uh, early part of World War II when there was a great deal of fear that the British were going or that the Germans were going to invade the British Isles, the uh, British actually went and took down a lot of the road signs, figuring that without road signs, it would confuse invading armies. They wouldn't know where they were. They wouldn't be able to pinpoint themselves on the map, and it would make it at least somewhat more difficult for them to to move forward. Right, that's that exactly sense. what you do when you start destroying price signals. And that's the problem with the central bank, because it manipulates interest rates, which are the price signals for the value of money. Yeah. Um, so we have all of this distortion. People, you know, who might otherwise be saving, they're not saving because the uh, Federal Reserve has artificially suppressed interest rates, or you know, maybe they'll raise interest rates, and then all of a sudden you're you're creating savings where there doesn't need to be. You don't need the government interfering with this, like you said. People, the markets, which is really just all of the collective wisdom of all of us acting together is much more efficient. It's not perfect. Nobody's saying it's perfect. There's always going to be problems because we always have to deal with the issue of, of uh, um, limited resources. There right. are scarce resources. We don't have enough stuff. So the question becomes, what is the best way to allocate 
these resources to make sure they go to the best use in society. And there are two choices. Number one, markets using price signals, making those determinations as we make decisions together, or Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi dictating from above. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, and, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned, I, I just, I watched a movie and if I can remember the name of it, it's going to be Moscow to Ham, I don't know, it's Robin Williams movie uh, where a Russian musician uh, defects. Oh. <laughs> to, uh, what is it called? Anyway, it's a yeah, great movie. I know movie. the movie. I, I don't, I don't know the name of it, but I do remember that. But the, the, the idea, the, the, um, you know, it, it showed, you know, 1980s ish, uh, uh, Russia, you know, and, and, and food lines. And it, it just made me think, it reminded me, I, I don't know who said this, but it, some smart, smarter man than me, economist, I'm sure said, there's no such thing as shortages unless government's involved. There's always scarcity, but there's only shortages when government's involved because, because the, the resources get allocated properly when it's only when, when those distortions happen that you have lines for toilet paper. You know, when a pandemic happens, it kind of reminded me of last year. Yeah. Well, and then and then what you end up with is you end up with lines for toilet paper. And then there's like 3,000 billion uh, extra notebooks because right. somebody somewhere decided, oh, we need lots of notebooks. So we made notebooks out of the paper instead of toilet paper. Or, or my favorite. Uh, oh, this is my favorite, you know, Soviet thing is is they had a, they they had a, to make certain a certain amount of nails. Um, and so, but they had it in poundage. And so what the manufacturers did is they made these giant impractical nails that nobody used. And so (laughs) it met their, their poundage quota, but it did not serve the needs of the people in any way whatsoever. Yeah. So yeah, central planning always fails because of the limits on the central planners. And, you know, even if you have brilliant people doing the central planning, there's no way a handful of people can possess all of the knowledge necessary to figure out where all of the things go in an economy. And people should check out uh, iPencil. Uh, it's a really yeah. relatively short uh, essay by Leonard Reed that shows all of the stuff that has to happen just to make something as simple as a pencil. There's no way human beings a few, no matter how smart they are, can plan this centrally. It spontaneously works through markets. And I will, again, uh, advance the idea that the people that we have doing the central planning aren't really the brightest and best. Again, (laughs) Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, and Mitch McConnell. I'm not sure that they could plan (laughs) their way to a weekend getaway, much less organize the entire U.S. economy. Right. All right, so so take us back into history. Then I mean, obviously, um, in at least the American history, um, Alexander Hamilton's kind of your your villain in this story, which understandably so. What um, what do you think he had in mind? I, I'm trying to like imagine. Other than then, I just I just here's here's a, a group of people who have decided that that they're going to throw off the shackles of of um, a, a king. And they're creating a new government, and and here's Alexander Hamilton, you know, trying to impose uh, um, a bank that that will, you know, instill a lot of those same uh, tyrannical forces on the people. Like, what what was he thinking? Well, Hamilton always was in favor of centralized, nationalized power. 
uh, he was in essence a monarchist. I, I think his issue with England is it's just that it wasn't a good a monarch. You know, we we want our own. It wasn't uh, the right people running the right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the people who want to vote the bums out. You know, you always end up with a new set of bums. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you go to the Philadelphia Convention where the Constitution was hammered out, he actually left in anger because he realized that his vision for the government wasn't going to come into being. Um, and he actually did a speech early in the Philadelphia Convention and where he kind of laid out his plan. And one of the things that he wanted was a, a president for life. You know, so he had very much these monarchical uh, tendencies. He wanted centralized national government. He recognized in the Constitution. I, I really do think that when he pushed for ratification and when he said that, oh, yes, this is going to be limited, enumerated powers and all of these things, I really think he was lying. I think he knew that if he could get this in place and then get himself in a position of power, he would be able to begin to bend the system closer to what he envisioned. And, and that's exactly what he did. I think it was uh, very much uh, political duplicity. I think he was a typical sociopath politician, and um, you know I, I would never wish death on somebody, but I'm, I'm don't blame Aaron Burr for shooting him. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's it's not unfair to call Alexander Hamilton a bastard because he was in fact a bastard. Yeah, he was. <laughs> in fact, so. we we le- we learned that from the musical. Right, exactly. And it's funny because the you know the mu- the musical has created all this interest in Hamilton and I think kind of uh, elevated his position as as cult hero. And I guess, you know, a lot of a lot of people um who there there are a lot of people today who still believe in this idea of centralized government. They think that central government, central power is best. I don't understand it. I can't wrap my head around it. A lot of the same people hate monopolies when it comes to uh you know the uh, business world. They would never want uh, Walmart to be the only grocery store in the United States. That monopoly would be awful, but somehow a monopoly of uh, government in Washington, D.C. is a good idea. And I think part of it is just this tendency that we have that we think we really believe we can get the right people in control, then we can make good things happen. And it's easier to make good things happen if it's centrally controlled. It's hard to go to 50 states and get things done. So why not get the quote unquote right person uh, in power in Washington, D.C.? The problem is, and, and I don't understand why people haven't figured this out yet. The problem is, even if you get the right person, the wrong person inevitably ends up coming in on their heels. So all of the people mm-hmm. who thought Donald Trump was the savior of America, well, look what you got now. You got Joe Biden, and Joe yeah. Biden has every bit of power that you wanted Donald Trump to exercise. You're just mad because he's not exercising it in the same way. And it's the same thing with the left. I mean, they were all for Obama having his pen and his phone and doing all of these executive orders. And then all of a sudden they were horrified because you know this guy that they thought was a fascist Nazi ended up coming uh, into office and then they were all upset. The problem isn't the people. The problem is the power. You have to keep power away from all of these people because any power that you give government today is going to be used against you tomorrow. Mark my words. Yeah. And and to me on a more fundamental question, it's it's about why, why do people have such an innate desire to give up their power? And, and I really do feel it's, it's a... Um, it's a way to obfuscate the responsibility for their own sad, sorry lives. Um, yeah. you know, we all, listen, I have a sad, sorry life like most people. Yeah. And, yeah, and, 
And so I, I'm not saying that to, as a, as a down, I'm saying that as like, if, if we say it's his fault, it's, it's so much easier to say it's Donald Trump's fault or it's Joe Biden's fault. And we hear this every single day. I'm out of job. Why? It's Ronald Reagan's fault. It's, it's Barack Obama's fault. It's, it's like, no, it's your fault. Yeah. Um, and, and at some point until you're, you, you have that, I don't know what it is, that awakening to say, oh, wait, if it, if it is to be, it's up to me. You're going to be blaming somebody and it's so much easier to blame a king or a president. Yeah, I think that's. I think you're. I think you're on to to a very fundamental truth. And I, I think the other thing that plays into it is that let's be honest. Who really wants to learn economics? Right. Right. I mean, I'm a nerd. I like economics. I understand that most people don't want to learn this stuff. I mean, it. I have a. I have a, an accounting degree. I've had a lot of exposure to finance. I've done a lot of reason reading. It took me a long time to even have a perfunctory understanding of, say, the bond market. Most people don't have that. So we tend to be driven along by our emotions. And our emotions say, you know what? It's a good idea if the government spends money, uh, you know, if we have enhanced unemployment to help people out. And, and they're just not, we're just not taught to think in terms of economics and to see, uh, as, as Bastiat explained, you know, described it, the unseen, the consequences of these actions that are negative. We, we don't think that way. And so in, in some ways, you almost can't blame people for not understanding what they've never been taught, you know? Um, nevertheless, the consequences of this stuff uh, goes on and on. And I think the people that are in power, they absolutely darn well know what they're doing yeah. uh, because it's to their benefit. I mean, you know, who's benefiting when the Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air and sends it off to the banks? Well, the bankers. I mean, mm -hmm. they're the ones that are getting the benefit of this money. They get it before it's devalued, you know? They get the first use of it. So if you really want to look at where the 1% and where this wealth inequality comes from, it comes from the fact that there are politicians and those connected to them who have the ability to manipulate the system for their benefit. The rest of us are hosed. We're left holding the bag, you know? <laughs> um, but again, it's easier to blame Obama and Trump and partisan politics and those damn Democrats or whatever it is than it is to really see that really it's two sides of the same coin, yeah, two sides of the same coin, or uh, you know, two wings of the same bird of prey. And uh, unfortunately, we're the prey. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. And this is a this is a um, not just American problem. This has been a problem for centuries. And and I love that you went back to Rome in the beginning of this. One of my favorite quotes is by Cato the Elder, and he's talking about uh, you know different ways to to earn wealth and to to gain wealth in in life. And and somebody asked him, well, well, what about banking? And he's finishes with, well, what about murder? You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's one of those things. Like like these are the these are the people that are they they're the people that want to turn us into serfs and um that's uh, you know whether and again as you said i love it wh whether we're ignorant of it or not like the consequences are the same it doesn't change the facts right and um so uh, finish up first uh, how can people get a hold of again we're talking to uh, michael Meharry, the author of the new ebook the, uh, the National Bank versus the Constitution. Where can people pick this up? And, uh, and what do you hope that they gain from it? Yeah, I really, you know, there, there, again, there are a couple of themes. I think 
I think the book is is really good for folks who want to have the basic understanding of what is central banking and what does it does do. We've kind of had this conversation. Um, it's much easier to read what I've written than for me to try to talk it off the top of my head. Um, so I, I think it really does a good job. I think the book does a fantastic job of kind of laying out what central banking does, why it's nefarious, uh, and and why maybe we should at least hope to find some alternatives to it. And there are some things that we can do to undermine the government's monopoly on money, mainly currency competition. So things like cryptocurrency and uh, precious metals and those types of things. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. Uh, the other aspect of it is I want people to understand uh, that this government that we have today isn't what was intended. And I really think that the bank debate is the the root of where things really went off the rail. And when you read uh, Jefferson's arguments, when you read Madison's arguments against the bank, uh, and, and there were others who were opposed as well, when you read these arguments, you really start to understand what the vision of the Constitution really was as um, as ratified, and then you start to understand just how far we have skewed away from uh, from that uh, that vision. So I think it's important to understand that and and um, and know that you know the the constitutional system has has been wrecked. Yeah. Um, and then maybe again we can start thinking about some things that we could do about that. Right. Uh, so that's kind of the two themes that I think people will get out of the book. It's a, it's a neat piece of history, and it it'll help you understand kind of those two uh, those two themes, which are uh, somewhat divergent but also connected. So how do you get the book? Well, right now you got to be a member of the Tenth Amendment Center. We're being stingy and All only right. offering it to TAC members for the time being. Uh, but the good news is. You can be a member of the Tenth Amendment Center for as little as two bucks a month. So you know, there you go. There you go. You know, it it take you. uh, It'll take you. You know, if you get to a whole year, twenty four bucks. I mean, that's a that's. I think the book book's worth twenty four bucks. I think the book is well worth twenty four bucks, and I also think the Tenth Amendment Center is well worth your twenty four bucks. Absolutely, because really, that's what you're doing. You're supporting the work of the Tenth Amendment Center, and uh, I would encourage people to check it out. TenthAmendmentCenter.com. It's all spelled out. You can, you know, just go to the website, go to the blog. You can you can see what we're doing. You can see the bills that we've been tracking. Uh, You can download the State of the Nullification Report, which is a uh, free ebook that we write every year. I'm getting ready to actually start on the one for twenty. 21. But it goes through and talks about all of the issues that we're working on, uh, the practical boots on the ground legislation that we're pushing and, and the progress that we're making. So you can download all of that before you even make a decision. Uh, but this book will ultimately be available to the public. So if you, you know, don't want to be a member of the TAC, and that's cool. Uh, Just wait. You'll be you able to get it down time and all the smart people get it first. Yeah, you got to, you got to, you're going to have to bide your time before it's, uh, before all it comes right. out. Well, again, thank you, Mike Meharry. I really appreciate your time. And, and uh, guys, go check out the Tenth Amendment Center. Become a member. Get the book, uh, The National Bank versus the Constitution. Thanks again, Mike. Let's do this again. Absolutely. It's always a, a pleasure to come on. I really do appreciate your support and uh, appreciate everybody out there that's listening, taking the time to listen. And um, yeah, appreciate it. Hey, our pleasure. Uh, This has been Mike Levitt, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains.